and you'll have the freedom to choose in that regard. But I think there will still be uh, privately owned uh, flying cars. Okay. And a lot of them, frankly. But no, that's exciting to hear. Yeah, there are, there are there are multiple camps out there that, that that see you know private vehicle ownership as something that should go away. Welcome again to It Doesn't Take a Genius, conversation with introspective perspectives and pithy points of view. Here are your hosts, my friends, Max and Marty. I think that's Mark and Mike. Yeah, whatever. Jackson! Marshall! Uh, you may have noticed a different intro from our usual podcast. Uh, this is our It Doesn't Take a Genius intro interview series. And uh, we're very excited to have with us uh, a wonderful friend of mine, uh, Tim Jackson. Uh, those of you in the automotive world may be familiar with Tim. Uh, he was just recently inducted into the uh, Colorado Auto Dealers Association, uh, Colorado Automotive Hall of Fame. Uh, congratulations. Uh, past 18 years with the Colorado Auto Dealers Association. Uh, and uh, just uh, probably the, one of the most tireless, uh, relentless, uh, excited, passionate people in the world of automotive today. Uh, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm uh, honored to be invited to be on your podcast. Yeah, it, long overdue, long overdue. I don't know why. Uh, it was actually Mark's idea. I don't know why we didn't think of this sooner. Uh, so you're, you've always got maybe a thousand irons in the fire. Uh, so what's, uh, what's the most passionate thing you're doing right now? Well, now that I have a little bit of free time that I haven't had for the last 35 years, much of, um, I started a book project and it's on automotive. It covers the past, present, and future of transportation and mobility, in particular, personal mobility. And, uh, uh, and all the way from the beginning of uh, the start of cars becoming a reality, uh, beyond a vision into a dream and actual functionality. Uh, all the way to present and how um, cars are essential in everything we do today. But also we go into the future. Everybody knows autonomous cars are coming. They hear about autopilot and, and um, fully uh, self-driving cars or driverless cars or autonomous cars, about three different names you can tag on, that, on those systems. Uh, we all know that's coming, but um, well, that's taking longer to roll out than what we anticipated. So ultimately, I think a solution to some of the problems that cars actually cause a few problems. Uh, the, one of the solutions may be to take the cars into the air and, uh, and, and come up with flying cars. And that's the autonomous cars, but they would be airborne instead of land-based. The, yeah, this is exciting to think about, uh, you know, we've been promised this for decades. Uh, you know, the, you know, my first recollection of this was the Jetsons and, uh, you know, made, made more realistic and famous by the movie Blade Runner. Those look, that looked feasible, <laughs> all those flying cars within a, a metropolitan city. Uh, so, uh, so that's where you want to end up. And you're, you've done some fascinating research about the, the, early days of automotive. Uh, so what did you, what, what was some of the most interesting things that you found out about automotive uh, in, in its infancy? Well, for all the credit that Henry Ford deserves and receives for being a visionary in the, in the auto industry, um, he's credited of course with the assembly line project or process and uh, building the first really mass produced affordable car that everybody can afford to buy and own and drive. Um, Ironically, um, 
that was in 1908, he started building the Model T. There was an individual uh, that was 10 years ahead of him right there in Michigan. And oh, by the way, at that time period, there were over 2,000 car companies trying to be launched around the country, not to mention around the world. And uh, most of those did not, uh, were not successful and did not become reality. But there was one over in Lansing, Michigan, about two hours uh, due west of uh, Dearborn, where Henry Ford was, that was starting out in 1898. And a guy by the name of Ransom Eli Olds started, uh, of course, Oldsmobile, what we would know as Oldsmobile. But uh, he was producing cars on the assembly on his assembly line process in 1898. And uh, that car that he produced was called affectionately the Curved Dash Oldsmobile. Now I've seen pictures of that Curved Dash Oldsmobile, Mike, and there is no dash. So I don't know where they get Curved Dash because it's all open front. Uh, the closest thing you can see that could uh, be called a dash is like a foot protector for your feet so they don't get muddy, I think, on mud being thrown up on the car from the car in front of you. But um, anyway, it's called the Curved Dash Oldsmobile. Is being produced on the assembly line. His assembly line was much different than, uh, than Henry Ford's. His assembly line was where the car stayed stationary and the workers worked their way down the assembly line. He later sold, just like three years later in 1903, sold his company um, to an investor who kept Ransom Eli Olds on to still manage the company. And they uh, got it up and running and volume volume production for that day. Uh, but then it was ultimately bought by uh, in the roll-up that created General Motors in September 25th of 1908. And the, the other companies that were in that same roll-up were Buick, uh, Cadillac, and then Oldsmobile, those three brands. And uh, they immediately knew that they needed to start a truck company or have a truck line. So they started GMC Trucks which of course still operates today as a division of General Motors. Ransom Eli Olds didn't really like being a part of the corporate structure. He was a part of that for a short time, but um, he broke away from General Motors and decided to start his own uh, new car company. And um, I wanted to call it the R.E. Olds Motor Works. And General Motors said, well, we bought the name Olds from you when we bought Oldsmobile from you to begin with. So they sued and they won. They he couldn't start it as R.E. Olds. So he just used his initials and then he called it the R.E.O. Uh, R.E.O. for Ransom Eli Olds. And he wanted to build, he was a visionary. So he saw the need for trucks as well, like General Motors did. So his, um, he called it R.E.O. Speedwagon was his truck. And, um, they started producing in 1917, the REO Speedwagon. There was a bus company up in, up in uh, Montreal, Canada, French speaking Montreal, a uh, bus company that still operates today. And they were building coaches for school buses and passenger buses and city buses. And that company is called Prevo. It's, it, you see these as fancy RVs on the road. It looks like Prevost, P-R-E-V-O-S-T but it's pronounced in the French pronunciation, Prevo. They needed the engine and the ch uh, chassis for their Prevo bus. And uh, so they bought them from the REO Speedwagon down in Lansing, Michigan. So he had a ready-made customer there 
uh, for volume production, just uh, building the chassis for buses. And then um, in the 1920s, um, Ransom Eli Old, still running the uh, REO Speedwagon Truck Company, uh, merged with another truck company called uh, Diamond Trucks. And Diamond, when due to the merger, they had to put the two names together. So they were going to call it Diamond REO, but then they decided just to change it and call it Diamond Rio. And uh, now if you haven't noticed, you know, being the astute individual you are, you probably have. We've just cited two famous bands. One of them is REO Speedwagon. There was a student in transportation class in Champaign, Illinois in the 1970s, goes into the University of Illinois transportation class, and he's uh, simultaneous to being in, in transportation class. He and his friends are starting a band. So he's hearing about the REO Speedwagon Truck Company in Lansing, Michigan. And he thought, oh, what a great name for a band. So he latched onto that, and that's where he the famous band REO Speedwagon, which started in the 1970s and still fills stadiums and auditoriums today, 50 years later, amazing thing. And that's how the name REO Speedwagon came for that, um, that band. Well, then there's uh, the Diamond Rio. There's a country band named Diamond Rio. And down in Nashville, Tennessee, the Grand Old Opry had another concert hall that was separate from the Grand Old Opry and they had a house band. So the house band would need a name. So they thought of, well, let's see, it's a country band. So let's see, uh, do have something related to trucks. So they picked Diamond Rio. That band still operates today, started in the 1980s, still operating and on tour today, still a popular, um, still a popular uh, uh, band. And so, uh, Ransom Eli Olds died in 1949, uh, and uh, so he didn't really have anything to do with either of these bands, but his namesake did. And uh, so his name lives on not just in the automotive world, but in the um, um, live performance world, both for rock bands and country bands. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a good friend of mine, he, uh, he, uh, he graduated from uh, high school in the 70s. And uh, he showed me his yearbook one day, and uh, it was uh, REO Speedwagon was the band that was playing at his prom uh, before they. Oh wow! Before they made it, uh, you know, they were playing proms and high school gyms and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, one that's of my a all, great story. That's one of my all-time favorite uh, bands. So you were also, uh, I did get a sneak uh, peek at some of the chapters of your book. One of the things that uh, that was also interesting about Ransom Eli Olds uh, was the dealer network. And something that we also attributed to Henry Ford. So, so what what was Ransom doing there that was uh, that was innovative? Well, he was ahead of Henry Ford on that as well, and that's because he had, I guess, because he had a car to to distribute before Henry Ford. So, he, uh, Ransom Eli Old started producing the Curve Dash Oldsmobiles in 1898, but he had a, he started franchising his dealer network in 1899, and in 1901. He took that Curve Dash Oldsmobile to the New York Auto Show, uh, which started in 1900. He went to the second one. He sent a notice out to all of his dealers, come to the New York Auto Show, so he could see the Curve Dash Oldsmobile and place orders for it. One of his franchise dealers came to that show 
liked the curved dash Oldsmobile so well that he placed an order for 750 of them. Now, Ransom Eli Olds hadn't even produced 750 yet, so it took him five uh, the next two years to produce the first 500. And um, but yeah, the the franchise dealer network was uh, really envisioned by both Henry Ford and Ransom Eli Olds, maybe others, but they knew they had their hands full in designing the cars, uh, figuring out the power source technology for those cars, where they would buy the parts, tools, and equipment to build the cars, how they'd hire the people to work the assembly line. They wanted to offload that dis distribution and not have to operate two, three, four, or even 5,000 dealerships around the country or around the world. So uh, they started franchising dealers. And therein lies how that franchise dealer network started that still operates today so successfully. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and there again, uh, I kind of equate uh, Ransom with, uh, with uh, Nikola Tesla. Uh, you know, you've got Thomas Edison getting all the glory uh, for, for the, the electrical world that we live in, the light bulb and, and all this. And come to find out when you do a little research, you find out that, that many of the patents that Edison used, that, that, that Nikola Tesla's, uh, you know, his original uh, ACDC uh, design was the one that was adopted versus Edison's uh, original uh, direct current design. So, so you're, you're, you know, it's one of those things where, yeah, you may not be the greatest and most innovative, but if you've got the best PR team, <laughs> you, can, you can be the guy that everybody remembers. Uh, and, and gives credit to. So, uh, yeah, this is exciting that you're shedding light on this part of uh, early automotive history uh, that many people aren't aware of. And so that's fantastic. So we never did say uh, the working title of the book. Uh, so the working title of the book is... Well, it's going to cover past, present, and future of transportation and personal mobility all the way to those autonomous cars and flying cars. And... Uh, so the title of the book is uh, Take Off of the Famous Movie, but it's Dude, Where's My Flying Car? <laughs> that is such a great question. Uh, yeah, I was, I was promised this via the Jetsons. I was promised this via the movie Blade Runner. Uh, yeah, I've been sitting here waiting. I, got, I, I put my deposit money back. You know, I didn't invest it in Apple or Amazon. I was just holding on to it, you know, so I could you know, get that down payment on the flying car. Uh, Tim, it's it's not looking it's not looking good. <laughs> the, uh, it's taking, it's it, gonna take a while. Is this well? Oh. You know, we were promised autonomous cars being fully functional in robo taxis um, back in 2015. They were promised by 2020. Here we are, three years past that deadline, and uh, uh, and I'm not sure we're any closer to that uh, to reaching that robo taxi dream that some had. So I really think that in a lot of ways the um, autonomous flying car that because they will be autonomous and they'll be emission free and all that um, will uh, maybe be easier than uh, creating the uh, fully autonomous cars that has to figure out how to navigate around bicyclists and pedestrians and other cars and the landscape and the weather on the ground let's just put them in the air and all they have to, they still have to figure out the weather the winds, the winds aloft, uh, any storms or hurricanes or tornadoes that may be coming at you. But um, everything else is just take off, fly, and land. And oh, by the way, on that subject, they'll take off like helicopters, most likely, and fly like airplanes after they're in the air. Uh, because it wouldn't work 
to have a 3,000 foot runway in front of everybody's house so they could take off on their flying car. They will take off like a helicopter, but fly like an airplane. Well, I mean, it, it works for John Travolta. Uh, he lives at the end of a runway, his own private runway, and, and flies his 737s around. But yeah, for the rest of us, uh, yeah, I think you're right. When you think about, uh, and actually when you started talking about this, it, it dawned on me that that this seems more feasible. When you think about the the inconsistency of the roads in America, you think about the uh, the, the 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 technological challenge of navigating the roads. I mean, in 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 Indiana, you're on a newly paved blacktop road at night. It's raining. I can't stay on the road. I can't imagine how a, a computer aided car would would do the same. Uh, but if you go up in the air. It's all that's all taken care of, and we have you're you're obviously a, a pilot. Uh, you're somebody who's flown successfully and crashed successfully uh, because you did walk away eventually. Uh, so that we have uh, beacons now, planes pretty much once they're airborne, they they're they're guided by navigational systems. All this starts as you're talking. It's like, all right, you may be onto something. <laughs> this might work. I think so. Uh, and you brought up the Jetsons. I think that's really a good, uh, a good analogy because um, somebody pointed out to me. I really hadn't thought about it, but the you know the Jetsons television show, television series, was from the early '60s. But everything that was in the Jetsons, in the way of technology, has played out, except for the car itself. So yep. that's the only thing left to figure out um, to make the Jetsons full full on full reality. And um, by the way, one of the one of the testing companies for flying cars is called the Jetson. <laughs> Appropriately. Uh, of course. And if they could make it fold up into a briefcase, even better. <laughs> yeah. That would be even better. Yeah, just the car folds up in your briefcase, you carry it into the office, you're off and running. And meanwhile, Rosie is cleaning your house and, and making meals. So yeah, this it's going to be a great future. So uh, talking about uh, the early days. Uh, so uh, the middle of the book. What are your what's uh, what are we going to see in that? The middle of the book is the you know the current times, and um, that, that's the past, present, and future. So that's the present, and um, I get into in that, and I've got a, already about. I've got about 55 chapters written total. Uh, most of those are the past chapters. Some are the present and some are the future. But um, it gets into all of the different aspects, or let's say the extension of the basic car. Just like that pickup, the REO Speedwagon was extension of the car way back in 1917. Um, it was, by the way, 18, 17 years behind the uh, uh, curved dash Oldsmobile. But um, so the extension of the car today includes, of course, uh, motorcycles and uh, other recreational type single person vehicles on the roads. So motorcycles, uh, it extends to adventure vans or what some call the uh, van life type vans. Very popular right now, by the way. They can't build or sell them fast enough to keep up with public demand. And then recreational vehicles, RVs. Some people now their home is their RV, so they're full-time RV. So if they want to move somewhere, they just uh, pull up the uh, 
uh, leveling jacks and put the put the the home on the road and take it to the next destination, and then uh, and then semi trucks. So the over the road type trucks, which are a part of the they're an extension of the automotive sector. So there's a sector on both the semi trucks and the special engines that power those, um, like the Cummins, uh, Detroit Diesel, Caterpillar, and other technologies, as well as there's coverage of the famous jig brake um, in that chapter. So, um, and all the reasons that cars have become essential in America and around, the, really around the world today, um, they are essential. We don't think about it but so much, but when somebody needs, you know, we may be avid cyclists. I'm a pretty frequent cyclist myself, but if I'm going to the emergency room, I'm not going to get on the bike and take me to the emergency room. I'm going to get in a car. No, no you, or you if, would try. Yeah. You would or, try. <laughs> um, or uh, we're not going to go on public transit. Um, you know, if, if we happen to be in one of these burn areas where there's a uh, wildfire that all the residents are having to clear out, grab the stuff you have to take and go. These people are not jumping on their bikes with their, with their pets and their clothes and their suitcases. They're, they're throwing them in the suitcase, throwing them in the car and driving out. We saw that in um, with the California wildfires. We saw it with the Oregon wildfires. And here in Colorado, we've seen it with the, with the Colorado wildfires. So cars are essential, uh, both uh, for those that are getting us away from the uh, wildfire scene, but also for the first responders who are going in to take care of that fire. They're all going in in, in motor vehicles and they're all extensions of the car. So cars are essential. And I'm, I'm finding a lot of different ways to communicate how essential cars really are. Mm -hmm. Well, and you think about uh, the size of America. When you look at, at the, you know, I was, in, uh, I was in Spain recently, I was in Italy, the mass transit that they have there, even in the rural uh, parts of these countries, the, the mass transit systems are, are pretty amazing and, and pretty efficient. Uh, but there's nowhere, nothing to the scale of, of the United States of America, the distance between our towns, and you know, where you live out west and, and even in the Midwest. Uh, so there, there is a need for personal mobility uh, because I don't know that it will ever be cost effective for governments to provide mass transit to, you know, to the entire country. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think that will even be, you know, even be possible. Um, but you, when you talk about Europe, I've studied a little bit and um, there's some reference to this. Let me give you some numbers. And I like to refer to data when possible. Here in Colorado, where, where I'm based, there are now just shy of 6 million residents who live here. It's uh, 5.87 million residents. And oh, by the way, as recent as the 1970 census, which was just 50 years ago, that number was 2 million. So it's grown from 2 million to, it took, it took a, over a century to get to 2 million in just the next 50 years uh, to triple that. Okay. How many cars are there? There's a registered vehicle on the road in Colorado for every man, woman, and child that live in the state, whether they're old enough to drive or too old to drive or can't drive, uh, we have a car registered for them. So there's 6 million registered vehicles. I took that number and, and did some research 
on one of the places that's let's say the most or let's say the least dependent one of the least dependent on cars and that's the netherlands um or some call holland or the dutch area right so the netherlands which is home to amsterdam rotterdam and the hague are all major cities there those cities are all working to get people out of cars they're serious about getting people out of cars but yet the netherlands has 13.2 million population and they have 6.3 million registered vehicles in the country it's not one for one but it's it's one for two which is still a goodly number and it shows that uh, a lot of people over there still view cars as essential in the Netherlands as they as we do here. The, so as you're looking at that and you're you're talking about the, the, that as an as an example of you know an alternative approach, when you think about flying cars, do you see the the flying car as as a personal mobility device or is a flying car going to be a a a short run mass transit device. If you think about it, we have flying cars now. We call them airplanes. Okay. Uh, you know, they roll, uh, but you have to go to a special place, and they only take large groups. And you, you know, unless you're uh, uber wealthy uh, and you have your PJ, your private jet, uh, you can't really make them do what you want to do and go where you want to go uh, on a kind of on-demand system. So, so is the flying car nothing more than than private jets uh, type system only more accessible? Well, that is the $64 million question, I would say. Um, I, think, I think you pose a very good question, even a very thought-provoking question, but I'm going to challenge that it's not um, the same as public transit. Um, and the reason, for the most part, that um, that flying car will be yours. You may not have to own it. You may not have to find a place to park it at night, but when you're in it, it's your vehicle. You're deciding where it goes, when it goes, and who is riding in it with you, and it's probably only you or you and your immediate family or friends. It's not the neighbors. It's not the, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's not a ride share or a carpooling that we're all gonna uh, carpool to work together. It's, it's your ride. So it's more, in my opinion, um, which I have to say this, in my opinion, which I respect. <laughs> I, you highly value, yes. Um, so I think it's, it's more closely aligned with being personal mobility, uh, a favorite phrase of yours, by the way. Uh, it's more closely aligned with personal mobility than it is with public transit. And, um, and therefore it's going to have a lot of the same attributes. It's gonna have that personal feel. It's, it's yours while you're in it. It's, it's yours to direct where you wanna take it, where I want it to go. It's yours to direct how fast you want it to get there for the most part. I mean, you can't be up there forever because they will have limitations on range. But, um, and it's yours when you wanna leave, when you wanna arrive and when you wanna return. So it's really more aligned, I think, and more distinctly affiliated with personal mobility than it is with public transit. Now, there are aspects of public transit that I think 
lean into this. And one of those would be um, the fact that somebody else has wrote in it before you got in it and the fact that somebody else will write in it after you get out. So it is shared in that regard. It's not shared for your specific ride, but it's shared for other rides. And by doing that, it makes it much more affordable because the units themselves will be frankly much more expensive than a traditional car, at least initially. Yeah, with all technology, yeah, the the initial, you know, the early adopters, I remember when people were paying, you know, $20,000 for a flat screen TV. And, you know, I had a, I had an early bag cell phone. I think I was paying $1.25 a minute to talk on the thing. So, uh, yeah, we know that, that that will happen. I am encouraged to hear that you're you're part of it. Sounds like you're part of the the belief camp that that believes that that people should still own their personal mobility system. Uh, you know, I, I believe that's that's a favored way, and I believe a lot of these will be. I think some of these won't be, and you'll have the freedom to choose in that regard. But I think there will still be uh, privately owned uh, flying cars, okay. and a lot of them, frankly. But no, that's exciting to hear. Yeah, there are, there are there are multiple camps out there that 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 see you know private vehicle ownership as something that should go away, uh, and uh, be you know reduced to 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 its the barest minimum. So, yeah, this is a it, yeah. It'd be interesting if you were uh, you know when you you when you roll out a new technology, you it has to be uh, the most innovative that people will accept. And so if it's if it's too innovative, it's too far advanced, it's too far outside the norm, it, it, it won't be accepted. And so going from a personal you know, land-based vehicle to a personal uh, you know, flying-based vehicle, that's, I think that's acceptable for people to make that, that jump uh, and, and make that, that, that investment willingly. Um, so as we kind of tie a bow on this, uh, something we haven't talked about, uh, what was, uh, what's your inspiration for the book? What, what, uh, what, you know, this is, uh, this is no, no small endeavor to, to put all this, uh, in, into a volume. Uh, what was, uh, what was the driving inspiration behind that? Um, that's an excellent question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, there's, um, for all the benefits of cars and the fact that cars are essential, um, as, as you mentioned, we have critics and there are some that want to eliminate cars as personal mobility or personal privately owned transportation. Um, the, um, I'm in a, in a big city in, the, in downtown Denver, and it seems that Denver is trying to, the city of Denver, and it's not alone in doing this, but I'll, I'll call it out on what it's doing, is making it harder for people to buy, own, drive, and park cars here. Mm -hmm. And there are advocates on the other side that, uh, on the side that you uh, cited, if you will, that uh, really want to eliminate cars as, as personal mobility and personal transportation, privately owned cars. There's a podcast based in New York City called, appropriately for them, The War on Cars. And when I go out and, and ride my bike, as I said, I'm a frequent cyclist or an avid cyclist, um, I'll see, I'll go to events and they'll have stickers on their helmet that'll say War on Cars or Cars Ruin Cities. And I, I see the car, the sticker cars ruin cities and I have to look at it crossways because how do cars ruin cities? Cars make cities better. How would you like to be in a city that you couldn't get around at your choosing when you want? 
how you want in any weather conditions, um, hot or cold, wet or dry, uh, snow or sunny. Um, so uh, there's four different things. Let me hit on these real quick. Um, one is that, that, and I used to just cite three, so I'm gonna add a fourth one in, which is more newish, if you will. Um, first is emissions. Cars have emissions, and they frankly have two types of emissions. One is the brown cloud emissions, and I'm out here under a, a brightly sunny blue sky. I see none of those brown cloud emissions here. New cars today, everything dealers sell today, everything manufacturers build today are 99% cleaner on that type of emission than anything available for manufacture or sale just 30 or 40 years ago. 99%, and that's a, that's a number, that's a big number, but I can document that. And so here in Colorado, new car dealers created a nonprofit foundation to take the old high emitting cars off the road and recycle them. It's appropriately called the Clear the Air Foundation. So we will eventually get to cars that, uh, where the entire fleet doesn't cause brown, the brown cloud. But there's another type of emissions and that's the climate change emissions. Those are CO2 emissions. Those are actually clear emissions. You can't see those. We're not 99% better on those. We are better, but it's, we're better as an equation of improved average fuel economy. But as long as we have gasoline cars, diesel cars, hybrid cars, plug-in hybrid cars, or anything that have combustion engines attached, we will still be producing carbon emissions. So with the battery, you know, battery electric vehicles are, as long as they're plugging into, and it requires this, of course, an emission-free um, production of electricity, those cars are operating emission-free. And eventually we'll get to an emission-free grid. Um, secondly is, safety. And we mentioned, you and I talked earlier about how dangerous it is or can be to run on a shoulder next to a highway or to cycle next to a highway. And some people won't do it. Uh, now their cyclists are calling for the protected lanes and we understand why they want those. Okay. So traffic fatalities hit an all-time high in 1972. And that number was 52,000. They declined year in and year out from 1972 to 2014. These are U.S. Uh, data point numbers, and they declined to about 32,000. So they declined by about a third over the next 40 or so years. Now they've spiked back up. And this is a trend in the U.S. that's not necessarily around the world, but a trend specific to the U.S. They spike back up, and largely because of added pedestrian fatalities and bicyclist fatalities. Um, so we, we really do, as a society, need to find a way to address that. One way to address it would be not putting the pedestrians and the cyclists right on the shoulder of major highways. You know, put them where they can be safer in parks, next to streams, next to railroad tracks or whatever. But um, don't put them right next to the highways. But there's other things we need to do and the cyclists can do and, and motorists can do as well. And that's to create a buffer zone or not put them next to each other. There's a project in Denver called the Bamos Project, which designs or uh, sites the safest neighborhood streets to cycle on. So we do need to address the pedestrian and, um, and the cyclist fatality issue, uh, whether it's pedestrian or cyclist fault or the motorist fault, it, it is a rising problem. And thirdly, is the space that cars take. So the city of Denver and a lot of other cities 
are taking away parking, on-street parking, to replace that with those protected bike lanes or bus rapid transit lanes. And uh, that's great for bikes potentially and, and bus rapid transit. It makes it hellish if you have to, if you own a car and you were planning on parking in front of your house with that car, because that opportunity is fast going away in Denver and a lot of cities. And the other parking, that's the structured parking in condos, apartments, hotels, and so forth, where they used to have parking minimums based on the number of rooms or the number of residents. Now, a lot of the cities like Denver has taken that away, where it used to be 1.7 parking spots per unit uh, minimum. Now, it's 1.7 parking spots per unit maximum. And if you don't want to build any parking spots per unit, you don't have to. And there's a 500-room hotel in downtown Denver built without any parking on site and a 240 micro apartment apartment complex. So the parking, uh, I, I would call it space problem. And, uh, and parking does require space. And then lastly, and this is the new, newish one, and that is the cost. So, and we've seen since COVID-19 hit, uh, since the pandemic hit, and we've had inflation everywhere else, we've had inflation in the car, in the new and used car arena. So new car prices are up. The last data point I saw on this, I believe it was from Cox Automotive or, or the NADA or both. Um, new car prices were up, and this is the average retail out the door price, were up by 24%. Used car prices are up more, about 30%. So that's made the average uh, new car go from a pre-COVID number of about $33,000 to a current number of a little over $50,000. That's a big increase in the cost of your next new car. So we are, as an industry, as a society, pricing a large segment of the public out of buying their next new ride. So they're having to stay in those older, higher emitting cars longer because they can't afford that newer, cleaner, greener car. And so for those four things, I was looking at, I'm always looking at solutions. What can the auto industry do or what can society do to address those four issues and make it in a practical way. And I think the most logical one is to amp up and ramp up flying cars, bring them to market, bring them into service, make them work, find a way to make them work, relieve the regulatory hurdles through the FIA and others who may not want the idea of flying cars in our airspace. There's a lot of air up there and a lot of room for a lot of cars, a lot more in our air than we have on our highways because they're already pretty full. Oh, that's fantastic. And those are uh, the amazing reasons uh, to to bring forward uh, this this book uh, that kind of deal you know, with the past, the present and the, the, the projected future uh, of automotive and, and personal mobility. So uh, I know you're uh, right in the midst of the, the whole thing and uh, looking forward to, to the completed project. I, I almost hate to ask, but do you have a do you have a timeline when you'd like to get this out? Yes, my pro uh, projected publication date, publication and distribution date is uh, 11 22 of this year. Okay. Uh, now, it might have a release date of January 1 of next year, and that's purely psychological. So, once we get past that January 1, it's like people don't want to buy last year's model, they want to buy this year's model. So, we might actually release the 2024 edition of um, Dude, Where's My Flying Car? on 11-22 of 23. 
The, uh, oh, that's fantastic. 11, 22, 23. Yeah, I like it. So uh, keep your eyes open. Dude, where's my flying car uh, coming to uh, bookstores near you? And uh, we'll definitely have you back uh, to talk about that. And uh, there is another topic that, uh, that I want to talk to you about that, that we'll save for a future episode. Uh, in the meantime, I'd just like to say thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us from the rooftop in uh, beautiful Denver, Colorado. Uh, absolutely a fabulous city and uh, and uh, i know that your 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 love there and uh, for many of the places you go i think they call you the mayor so <laughs> i am often called the mayor here yes so and i didn't uh, even have to get elected to the office no no you you did it through just purely uh you know, the the incredible network of people that you've worked with and helped over the years so that's fantastic uh, so i'm going to throw it over to our announcer uh he's unpaid and uh, he would love to have a flying car as well. So take it away, Mr. Wolf. So go ahead and tweet that or share it any other way you want. As always, there are no rights reserved, no trademarks, no copyrights. Share it if you want to. And join us next time on It Doesn't Take a Genius. That's good enough.